0: Are you complaining about your Laserdisc collection right now? Is that what's happening? We're not going to talk about that, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Catalyst, the Launch by NTT Data podcast. Launch is a brand new offering from NTT Data that focuses on design-led, product-led, high-end software development. I'm Chris Lissacco, the VP of Product Innovation at Launch. And today I am joined by a very special guest, practice leader from Launch, our product management lead, Jamie Bernard. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing very
1: well, thank you. It's a day I get to talk about product management, so it'll be a good day.
0: It's always a good day when we can riff on product. I wanted to have you on the show today to talk about what I think is actually a really interesting topic, which is how to think about product market fit, especially when you're at a big company. But I have a lot of thoughts. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. Before we dive in, can we talk a little bit about your background? Because everybody sort of lands in product from a different path. So tell us a little bit about how, what took you to product? How did you get here? And what do you love about it the most? So
1: I started out as a BA, which anytime I'm coaching an organization, I let them know that because it comes through in a lot of the stuff that I deliver to clients and, and encouraged to get delivered to clients. And I navigated to product really because I had a forward thinking leader who really saw the value of having a product manager, understanding the customer first. And he decided in the organization that we were in to flip the switch, but not like a lot of organizations do, which is I'm going to knight you a product person. On Friday, you were a business analyst. On Monday, you're a product. He actually took the time to teach us what the difference was and let us go and make our mistakes. And I sort of Grew into it from there and and really started to learn some valuable and hard lessons about, you know, delivering things that I think are cool versus things that the customers actually want and navigating Mm -hmm. up through individual contributor, getting into the consulting side and, and really looking at what does a product organization look like. I've spent a lot of time across multiple domains, lots in the healthcare sector, manufacturing, cable television, Oh gosh, I can't retail you name it and and one of run down the list you've checked them all. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing that I like about it though is that it it continues to reinforce the notion of customer first, product led and it doesn't matter what domain that you're in if you come into it with those principles you're going to build some pretty cool stuff that solves valuable customer problems. I've been a consultant for oh gosh, I would say at least 15 of the years that I that I got started. And so obviously I started when I was 10. And um and so <laughs> <Of course. laughs> to that end, you know, here, here we are. And now I get the ple- I have the pleasure of coaching up and down the portfolio stack, right? I spend a lot of time in the system, hands in the in it, say because I like to practice, I'm a practitioner at heart, but I also like to work on the system and think about the way that product management is evolving. And how organizations, quite frankly, sometimes aren't. And so that's kind of where I'm playing a lot today, is how might we play in a space where Conway's Law is something that we have to battle so that we can be a product-led organization. What's Conway's Law? Conway's Law, really, it states that systems are built in alignment with your organizational structure. And so it can cause siloing, it can prevent a lot of cross-tower communication collaboration, because your systems are structured in the way that your organization is. And so to decouple those and think about shaking things up is number one, super expensive. Number two, it's scary. And number three, it's a big gamble, right? And and some people don't particularly love gambling their careers on moves like that. So it can be a pretty, it can be a challenge.
0: <laughs> it can be a challenge. God, when you said that, I remembered, a project that I worked on probably about 10 years ago in my career. It was for a higher ed institution and it was how to stand up a brand new web presence for them. And I kid you not, 80% of the debate was what do people want when they come to this website versus what is our org structure and how do we make sure everybody's represented? More then 80% of our conversation was around how do we navigate you know making sure no one's feelings get hurt when we're trying to figure oh, yeah. out what people actually want when they go to the site so i conway's law absolutely rings true to me and your point about it being a challenge to coach and and help organizations navigate through it uh, is exactly right yeah it's a
1: fun challenge though i've had some really courageous leaders lean into it and it, to see the way that they're approaching their business decisions and the seemingly overnight focus on the customer is the part that is really cool because they start asking the how might we questions instead of focusing on, we have to increase our earnings per share or our revenue or whatever, right? That's always going to be the end goal for a, a you know, private or for a, a company. But the question becomes, how can we do that in a way that's valuable to our customers? And they start thinking about what competitors are nipping at our heels that are solving problems better than we are. And you know, some of the best advice I was given by a mentor of mine, his name is Scott Sellhorse. He's a fantastic product guy. And one of the things that he told me was, journey map your competition. And look at what they're doing. Oh, look at what you're doing. You know, Try to objectively look at the things that they're doing better than you. And why do customers flock to them for that, for that sort of thing? Those conversations can sometimes be scary, but to see them happen in an organization that has been around since you know, 50, 60, 70 years, where they were always focused on, build it, if you build it, they will come, now they're more focused on, how can we solve these, the problems for the customers so that we can be the disruptor? And maybe avoid disruption, or at least give our competitors a run for the money, so that we don't lose all, lose a big portion of market share. So to hear those conversations is that's to me when I know we've got to win. Like that's when I start to really get excited, because the focus is now really where it should be, because the customer is the one that's making you money at the end of the day.
0: I love so much about what you're saying. You've already given a great template for how you go after really defining a good product market fit, right? Start with the customer. I love the idea of journey map your competition. Let me ask you this though, Jamie. You mentioned the word disruptor. I think when you're at a startup, it's very easy to think of yourself as the disruptor because it's brand new. And you're like, we have to go after something that already captures a part of this market and we're already going to look at our competitors because we are starting from zero. And so we have to think about the landscape because we're going to go try to establish ourselves, and grab a toehold in that landscape. It can be a lot harder when you're at an enterprise like you're saying 50, 60 plus years of history, not all of it digital, but some of it digital, and you're trying to you're trying to disrupt yourself as much as you're trying to disrupt what's out there in the market. And sometimes you have a pretty good position in the market. And so you have to think about uh, product market fit that is future facing, that is a little bit different than where you are current state. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, how do you have to change your perspective if you're coming at it from, you know, a well-established position already versus, you know, a new entrant into the market? I, I love this question
1: because my entire career has been in large enterprise. The startup space is, is a place where I've studied and I've had lots of conversations through lots of industry, you know, meetups and conferences and stuff like that. And of course, I, I'm a book, bookworm, so I, I've read lots of interesting stories as well, but I've lived large enterprise since I was in my early 20s. So when it comes to product market fit and the enterprise, I, I'm, two things I want to talk about. Number one, just the, the project cycle, right, and how work gets done and how it gets prioritized but also the three horizons. Because I think that's where a lot of companies will really lose sight of it when it comes to what they're choosing to build and why and the investment that comes with that.
0: What are the three horizons?
1: The three horizons mean like my, my core offering, my first horizon, 85% of my money really is to go into my core offering. This is what I have out in the marketplace. I've secured this market share. If I were to do nothing else, I would coast along and just deliver this value proposition out to the marketplace. That's 85% of my wallet. The other 15%, however, is I think where that nature of disruption can come into play and getting that 15% that out of the coffer can be really difficult because it's a lot of experimenting and the purpose for that experimenting, I think can sometimes get lost in the request when in reality, that should be the conversation, right? Because if I'm going to mm. ask you for money, I should be able to justify, here's what I think is going to happen when I spend this money. Because I'm taking this and I'm, I'm putting it on the roulette wheel. I'm asking you for it. I had better have a reason for thinking that I'm going to hit black, right? So as a, as a person asking for money, I want to look at that, that other 15%. So the second horizon might be, here's our core offering and maybe how can we add some bells and whistles to that? Maybe there's a smaller market that we can add on to it. Or maybe there's a, a side project that we can do that might get a little bit of market share that, that goes out of our comfort zone, right? It, it's not necessarily you know, groundbreaking stuff, but it just makes your products better. It expands your offerings and it offers more solutions to your customers. The third horizon, that's where 5% comes from. So I go by I go the 85%, 10%, 5% of budget. That's just kind of where my my head likes to be. The 5% is the experiment. That's where the prototyping comes into play. That's where I have a hypothesis. It's testable, it's very scientific method driven. I'm telling you what I'm going to test. I'm telling you who I'm going to test it with. I'm going to go talk to my customers. I'm going to perform contextual inquiry, which is literally going and watching you, you know, use something and talking to you about it. And I'm going to share with you my findings. And then we're going to determine, should we ask for more money or should we double down on that bet and and start to invest because we might have uncovered a diamond here? You know, so it's really all about testing. And I found that in large enterprise, sometimes that 5%, it's really hard to let go, or it's really hard to justify for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the infrastructure can cause you to spend all your money on the now because you you have a monolith, you have not updated your hardware, your software, your roles are no longer human sized. So you're having to, to augment and you just don't have the budget to do it. So there there are a lot of peripheral things that that can cause that. Number two, you have people in the industry, in your company who, who say, listen, I've been doing this for 20 years. This is what we need to go build because they're going off gut, right? Instinct. I know this this, yep. this business, which is fine. <laughs> there are, these people are smart people. I have no doubt in my mind that they make good decisions, right? But they don't always make good decisions. And unfortunately, even though I like to think I can predict the future, we can't predict the future. And that's where the the 5% comes into play, right? I really want to take that and try to sprinkle some wisdom on my crystal ball, remove some uncertainty and say, because we've spent 50 grand here, I think it's worth spending another 500K because we can really get a big return on it because early indicators say yes. And so that's where I think the, the play comes in.
0: You just said a lot of very smart things and I want to I want to unpack them. So a couple of things that I want to make sure we just linger on for a minute. Number one, you said it's a roulette wheel. That is real. Like you are, as an organization, as a product team, you're making a bet. When you're in the 5% land, you don't know what is going to show a return. And so you have to allow for the fact that the experimentation could fail. And failure is not failure. Like it is okay to try something and learn that it didn't work and then adjust and try something different, right? This is the idea. They are informed decisions, right? You have a point of view, but when you're in 5% land and so many enterprises miss this, they say, well, we have to do something that is a sure thing because we know, we know we're going to succeed. And the reality is you should be spending some of your time, some of your energy and some of your dollars on trying totally new things. And Even if many of them don't work, that's okay because if one of them does work, it could be extremely valuable to your business. This is how big new revenue streams get opened up. This is how you introduce an entirely new product or an entirely new platform to market because you are trying new things that are still in your business but are not part of your core offering. There's a method to the madness, right? What you said is exactly right, which is that you can constrain it. You can make it very small prototyping. You can do hands-on user interviews with those prototypes to start to gauge what's making sense and what's not. And if you want to further invest or if you want to kill it, And there are ways to spend those dollars in a smart way, even though ultimately they are bets. And if you make some good bets, you could be rewarded tremendously because you've started to see the traction and then you go further. So I absolutely think as big enterprises are thinking about how do, I, how do I go after, you know, new adjacent markets, this is one of the ways to do it is allow for some of your budget to be experimentation with product people and designers who are really doing these tests. So I love that idea. And then to come back quickly to this, the 10% thing, have you ever heard of this concept that you want to build features that have 100% reach? I think this is super interesting when people think about how do I, uh, you called it like the bells and whistles or the, you know, the, the additional feature on my core platform. So it's not part of the core core, but it's like one step removed. And sometimes what I think enterprises get wrong here is that they try to do something that is related to the core business, but is only going to be meaningful to like a small slice of their users. Like it's only going to really scratch an itch for like 5% or 10% of their existing user base. What I've seen really be, be game-changing is when you look at a an, an existing platform, an installed platform and say, how can I add value that's going to hit 90% of the users or 100% of the users? Doing something like that means you've got to go back to the fundamentals. You've got to say, how do I identify the core workflows of what we're doing um, and and add on to those or maybe rethink some of those, right? I'm going to make navigation really sing. I'm going to make onboarding go really well. I'm going to clean up the speed of our mobile app. It's these kinds of things that many of them are not considered like the core offering, but they have close to 100% reach. They touch all of the users and they make a tremendous improvement that can lead to happier clients, (laughs) more repeat business. Um, And ultimately, if you're doing it right, they can open up new lines of revenue too. So I like the idea of saying with that 10% time, it's a little more focused. It's a little more, you know, uh, connected to our 85% core business. But there's a way to do it where we're trying to think about who is this going to hit? And then how do I make sure that that we're doing, you know, something really amazing for the maximum number of people.
1: I cannot tell you how often companies will fall into the trap of solving for the local. And it might be an objectively yes. good solution, right? Like, this is going to make these 10% of people so and happy that, you know, you can sell that all day, every day. But when they lose sight of the reach, then the ROI really isn't a fraction of what what you could have. Again, it might be an objectively good idea, but when you're investing dollars in that second horizon, that might not be the best spend, I'll say, or the best choice on which to spend it.
0: Right. Cause you just there's a limit, right? The maximum return is lower because the audience is lower.
1: Yeah. And I mean sometimes you have to do that, right? Compliance comes into play and legalities or whatever. But but I I, I could not agree with you more.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to the five percent for a second you know, we were we were chatting about this a little bit and we were talking about some of the, the client work that you've been doing. And part of this is education, I think, for big orgs about when you're in that 5% land and you're introducing something new to the market and, you know, something that's connected to your platform maybe, or maybe it's an, an entirely new thing. What do those early days look like? And specifically, what is the, what is the chasm? Like when you think about <laughs> introducing a product to market and the user adoption... There's a graph that you showed me which I love and it has this big space in the graph. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes.
1: Yeah, so the the graph that you're talking about is by Je- a guy named Jeffrey Moore. It's called the Diffusion of Innovation. And it's this bell curve, right, that that's really it talks about, you know, the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, late majority. This is like economic theory, right? It's just standard stuff. Any product that goes to market. You have the people who will grab it and run with it, and then you have certain things that die when they hit the chasm. I don't know if the audience remembers LaserDisc or uh, you know other alternative <laughs> viewing methods discs. that that kind of died on the vine, right? So when we think about the chasm, that's the place in that adoption life cycle where you've you know you've got your early adopters, which I happen to be one of them. So like I can't Me tell so- you how many times I'm like, oh, this is obsolete now. I have some uh, video gaming accessories that are no longer relevant. We'll just we'll just leave it there. But the, you know, those are your innovators, and then you've got your early adopters, who are basically the people that I talk to. I'm like, you got to get this. You know, some of those people are are going to grab it. So these are the folks who are have probably a little more expendable income, a lot more curiosity, and they're going to be that first little bit that probably gets you excited about your product. The chasm is where the reality sets in. And where the notion Mm -hmm. of if you build it, they will come really just flies out the window. Because at the end of the day, there's a real good chance that that's where you get stuck. Because that's the thing that you have to, to have to cross in that life cycle where you're transitioning from the early market to the mainstream. And making that transition is quite literally a leap, you know, going from the new little known to this big, big thing. I mean, we've all seen it, right? We, we saw it with Uber. We've seen it with Airbnb. We've seen it with Peloton, right? All of these companies had these little startup moments and then suddenly, bang, they crossed over the chasm, the mainstream and majority started to get hold of it and they took off. And that chasm is where startups go to die or they go to make a gazillion dollars by getting bought or just really leaning into their market fit, <laughs>
0: Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we put this in an enterprise context? Because I think a lot of the same lessons apply, right? I spend my 5% energy investing in some new things for my platform. I start to get traction on some, right? Those early adopters start to show up. I feel like, you know, the vibes are good. What do I do next to be able to cross that chasm as an enterprise where, you know, I have to take care of the core business, but I want to give this thing a real shot.
1: This is where I think two two relationships are super, super important. Your product marketing, your sales folks, and mm-hmm. your friendlies. So what I mean by that is, you know, people who I might work with as a as a customer that I can appreciate their feedback. Like they will call me and say, listen, I love your product, but this, this, this is really causing me problems, or these, this, and this are really great. Investing in those because I love them. Right, they're the customer that you have true dialogue with. Leveraging your friendlies, in my opinion, is one of the one of the places that companies can often overlook, and it's that is no small statement because I don't think they're overlooking it for just because they don't think about it. Strategic partnerships and you know all of the legalities that go with trade secrets come into play here. So I know that that's a complex thing. But it's worth the investment because you can really get an in the system test and feedback and view outside of your innovation lab, outside of your prototype to really see, hey, can you test this real world thing for me? And if you get it right, now you have potentially an advocate, right? So you can make arrangements as part of that relationship to really leverage, you know, getting something out into the market with a friendly who is actually using it and they're using real live data, real life experience to give feedback on it. And then with your product marketing folks, having that relationship and making sure that, that you are clear with your value proposition, that your marketing folks really understand what problem you're, you're hypothesizing that you're solving, and knowing how to leverage your current reach to get that out there is where the opportunity is. That's actually the advantage that a lot of large enterprises have especially if they're going into a peripheral peripheral market or if they're really advancing the current technology that they're using, they can stand up they this is where they can rest on their laurels and leverage that cred- credibility to elevate and to get people to take yes. a chance. You know, I know like when I have bought certain things, I will go tried and true. I happen to be a specific brand of television fan and when I'm trying a different gadget, if that brand of television happens to to come out with that gadget, that's most likely the one I'm going to buy because I've had good experience with that.
0: That's a very real thing. So you said something about when you're working with marketing, make sure you're thinking about, make sure you have a, a really good shared common understanding about the problem that you're trying to solve. Yes, A lot of people overlook that. And that's a really important point. How do I, as a product team or a product person, really connect with my colleagues in marketing, orienting around the problem just as much as the solution can be really helpful because you know it's like you define the pain and suffering and then you say we've got a good antidote yeah. <laughs> you know we got a good we got some pain relief that we can start to talk about to people but um, making sure that it's clear like what you know why why did we do this why do we think that there's traction here why do we think we want to evangelize this well this is why because there's real there's real pain points that we're addressing makes total sense to me and the point about you know leverage your brand equity and say hey you know you know us for this one thing and we do it really well and now we're doing this other thing but we are bringing the same level of industry expertise you know rock solid security hopefully um, you know reliability and and customer support and all of those other things use the power of your brand assuming you've got a good brand and and let it bolster the case because a startup can't do that a startup is trying to build that brand from from the get I think those are great points. And making sure that you've got strong relationships internally, right? Your product team and your marketing team is really important. I would also sort of related to this. I would wonder about like a customer support or a customer success team, because it feels to me like they also play an important role, especially when you're introducing something new. Curious if you have thoughts on that.
1: They do. However, I always encourage clients, do not overinvest in support. That is investing in failure demand. If you are spending a lot of money on support, then that is a canary in the coal mine that there is a failure within your product that you need to address. Typically, it's a usability or user experience thing, right? So knowing that, I think at the beginning, especially the customer support folks, you can really partner to understand where did we get it wrong? Even if you do hit, even if you do cross the chasm, I can pick up my iPhone that I have used a version of forever, and I can tell you things I don't like about it. If this was the version one, that customer support group would be very important because you can start to ingest and synthesize and really look at what stands out as that 100% reach. Where can I actually invest our dollars that we want to enhance or, or improve that will satisfy for the many? and really increase, you know, our credibility as problem solvers. That's where I think they become, they really are valuable upfront. The goal should be to reduce their role and get them focused on, you know, something else or even in the next area, right? Because if you're spending millions of dollars on applications so that you can give better support, I would urge you to look at what you're supporting and see if you can carve out some of that money and solve some of those issues so you're not having to deal with that in the first place.
0: I love that. That's a great. That's a hot take. It's a good one, though. That is a, a great <laughs> piece of advice. And, you know, that's like, hey, look at where you're spending your money and and read between the lines because you may be putting band aids on problems that you should just be putting solutions to.
1: Oh yeah. So I I read a book called Build. It was actually recommended by our the VP of Engineering, Nate Spilson. And it's written by Tony Fidel, the guy who created the Nest. Oh, they created the iPod. Yeah. And Nest. Yeah. He has the best quote. I love it. And I throw it in presentations all the time. And it is literally people like painkillers way better than they like vitamins. (laughs) And so if you are (laughs) solving, you know, right. So
0: good. You know,
1: listen, am I going to take something for, you know, my back hurting, or I'm going to go get on my Peloton and ride something to improve. You know what I mean? Like which one feels better? (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's that same concept, right? Aligning with your, with your executives and understanding what pain are we solving? How are we really going to get this done? And then telling that story with your marketing folks is, is, can, can give you a really, really
0: good recipe for some success. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. That is a wonderful sentiment that every, everybody's taking. Everybody's feeling pain relief right now. Hopefully they're not <laughs> popping pills, but they're just feeling really good. I would be remiss though, Jamie, if we ended without me asking, do you have a favorite piece of antiquated video game tech that is sitting in a closet somewhere in your home? I do. Well, I have two things.
1: One of them is not necessarily tech, but it is an ET Atari cartridge that is from the dump. Oh I, I have that. God, that's somewhere, incredible. Which is just wild. And then the other one that I have is an old Oregon Trail handheld.
0: Oh my <laughs> and god! Literally,
1: and it works. And you can literally play the Oregon Trail game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! You can die of dysentery whenever you want. That is yes, all incredible all day. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamie. This was. Fantastic! If you are listening to this and you're thinking, yes, this is making sense. I have been struggling trying to figure out product market fit. My team just doesn't get it. I would really love help or at least just some ideas. Please reach out. We would love to hear from you. We have a brand new email address, catalyst at nttdata.com. C-A-T-A-L-Y-S-T at nttdata.com. I will get those emails. Jamie will read those emails. We will figure out how we can help you. And we'd love to talk about this stuff. So please don't hesitate to get in touch if you would like to talk about your problem. There are new episodes of Catalyst every Tuesday. Please make sure you subscribe in your podcast listener of choice. And we are so thankful to have you as listeners. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. And we will talk to you all soon. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye.